what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Glenn, Pat, it's time for new ads. It is time for new ads. They have new sponsors. But we've also got some remaining ones as of well course. that we've got to bless them. So it turns out we're actually behind because people jumped into our Patreon and sent us much money and we didn't realize. Until they said, oh, what's happening? Yeah. Hey, where's our ads? Yeah. Here it is. We're doing it. You know where you should get dog training equipment in North America now? Who? Mojo Dog Co. Mojo Dog Co. Yeah, mojodogco.com mm. is a website. There's a real store. It's in Chicago. Yep. But it's a website you can totally go to and they pretty much sell everything. They've got mills. They've got training gear. They've got apparel. There's food. There's dog beds. Like it's a legit store. I've and been you've there. been there. I've you? been there, yeah. Yeah, I, you've I, witnessed I, it firsthand. You've I, um, smelt the odors. You've tasted the food. You've run on the mills. I committed theft. I stole a tub. <laughs> I think I was allowed to take it. Too late now. I've got it. I, yeah. I, I just trained with it today. So basically he's paying us Patreon money for you to steal his toys. Yeah. It's okay. a it's a great Klein tug. It's fantastic. A Klein tug? Yeah. Oh, it's you know who else sells a Klein tug? Uh, who? The Buffhead. The OG Buffhead. Really? Yes, he does. He does. Yeah. He, he, in fact, he does. I got from the Buffhead a Klein flirt pole, which all the dogs favor over all the other ones. Really? Yes. They you like shouldn't that. allow toy preferences, Len. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. They do. They choose what they want. We have two places that you could get dog training equipment. Yes. MojoDogCode.com. Yeah, in North America. Yeah. And Einzawiener.Buffed. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) You You know what's a really cool product? The Rowdy Hound dog kennel. It's the kennel that attaches, like it's a crate that attaches to your motorcycle. Yeah. So you can take your dog anywhere that you're traveling if you own a motorcycle and yep. you want to take your dog with you. If safely. I owned a motorcycle, safely. if safely. I owned a motorcycle or a dog that wanted to ride one, yep. I would 100% get one. I own a motorcycle. You should get one. I should get one. You should get one. I can see you a little Frenchie hanging yep. off the back of your motorbike. Mm. Yeah, I think that Mando would probably cause me to come off my bike. He yeah. would probably rock around like crazy on yeah. that thing. But yeah, yeah little Frenchie. little dog like what George Kittridge does, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful bloke and a dear friend of ours. Sponsor of the show. Sponsor of the show. And he takes his little blue healer, which mm-hmm. is an Australian dog. Mm-hmm. And George has been out here in Australia. He knows all about Australia. He mm-hmm. stayed in Australia. He's done it all. Mm-hmm. But he actually takes his little blue healer. And he rides her all around the state and he teaches other people how to do it as well with their dogs. So not only does he sell the product, but he trains people on how to use it as well. That's great. It is. You know, he should get everybody to do a big road trip up to Canada. Yeah. You know what they could do in Canada? What's that? Go to Dancroft. Ah, Dancroft. Geez, they could watch a puppy class there, couldn't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they're doing seminars as well. Really? Yeah, they've got seminars, they've got teaching, they've got education. But as I spoke to Daniel, who runs Dan Croft, mm-hmm. he was telling me all about their amazing puppy classes and they do some kick-ass social media. Yeah, they do. They've got some pretty extreme type of breeds over there that they've got them all under perfect control, like all these American Staffies. They've got all these bull breeds that people complain about, whinge about and say they can't be trained. And mm-hmm. Dan Croft has them doing not only 
beautiful stays, but they also have them on balls. Mm. So they have the dog, Incredible. you know, like inside a tyre and the dog's doing beautiful drop stays while they're at peace and at harmony and somebody's walking around, all the owners are there with the dogs. They're having a great time. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, I bet those dogs are well-conditioned and healthy. Yep. Yeah. How would they do that? Probably the best way is to get yourself some canineceuticals. Hey, you've been using it. I have actually. No shit, like jokes aside, Remy was – circling the drain. He was in bad shape. And yeah. I said to Narelle, hey, I want to try and get him back in condition, mm. see how much longer I can get from him. Because like the mind is willing, but the body is weak. Yep. And so she hooked me up with all the right things and he's a million times better. In fact, he's actually better than he has been in you know probably two years. And you did a really cool social media content for Narelle the other day, which he really appreciated. I make sweet reels, bro. You do. Yep. You are pretty good with your reels. Again, all jokes aside, I'm not just saying this because Narelle's my wife. I make this very clear, but she what? Is, she's actually a genius with that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. When other people are sort of relaxing and kicking back, I know people are busy and they've got things to do, but Narelle reads white papers. She's doing everything. She's always looking how she can improve the standards in a dog's life. So like She actually amazes me. She's mm. very, very industrious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Mojo Dog Co. Yep. Einz a wiener. Einz a wiener. Mm-hmm. Rowdy Hound. Rowdy Hound. Dan, Dan Croft. Croft. Yep. yep. Thank you all very, very much. You guys sponsor the show. If you want to support the show, support them. Yes. They're the place to get the gear. Yeah. And if you get into Patreon and you tick that box, just know that we don't check that very often. <laughs> yeah, so you've got to tell us. You've got you you, you you to shoot us a message. Yeah, it's fine for you to let us know. We really appreciate you. We started off our shows talking about some of our new attributes, things that we've got. Yeah. And we would never have got that without Patreon support. It's That's Patreon right. that pays our bills. All right. Enjoy the show. And our sponsors. Enjoy the sponsors. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Two in a row. Yeah. Wow. Mm. People don't know that. It's a week later. They don't know that it's the same day for us. You just no, you no, just, no, no, no. You no, just I meant, show them behind no. the curtain. <laughs> two in a row that we're in the studio. Two in a row. That's what I meant. Two oh, in a row right, that okay. we're in the studio. It's actually only a few hours later we went and trained some dogs because I'm actually in America right now. Right. Right. Anyway, carrying on. Carrying on. We're going to continue from, to answer questions. Yes, listener questions. Okay. So there's a couple we're going to go past because there's whole Patreon episodes on that that yes. just, we've just discussed on the difference between negative reinforcement, positive punishment. There's lots. Um, people are probably sick of it by now. So we're going to move to someone named Andley Ha. I'm concerned and disturbed by stories when dogs turn on, for example, dog walkers or caregivers or worst, its owner, and not only attack but attack to death where they are found eating their victim. Dark topic but are there signs that certain dogs are capable of this and how to prevent it? Absolutely, there are signs around it. One of the primary issues for many of us in the boarding and pet care industry, and without trying to sound like we're building a competitive edge against people who do in-home pet sitting and so forth, but one thing that we have generally found, yes, there's professionals who do pet sitting. There's no two ways about it. There's great people who do pet sitting, no issues, no harm, no foul. There's also a lot of people who have very little animal industry, full stop. When I say animal industry, I'm of course I'm including dogs in that, but I'm talking animal behavior, full stop. Recently there was a, and I'm not sure how recent ago it was, but there was a young lady in the United States whose face was totally degloved by a couple of bull breed dogs that she was looking after. Mm. 
it nearly resulted in her death. I think neighbours heard the screams and cries of her and police went round there. She was able to communicate with them, but when they came in, they were horrified because her face was peeled off and the dogs were consuming the flesh of her face. She's been very brave and she's gone on and done interviews on mainstream media. That poor girl, it is horrific what, mm. the, what the dog's done to her. Anybody can watch it. It's on YouTube. I'm not even going to put a link up. It is very confronting when you see what this young lady has endured. It's not her fault. She didn't deserve this to happen to her. It's one of those things where, and I say this delicately and with compassion, but it's one of these areas where people let their ambitions get mixed up with their capabilities. Mm. And that happens a lot. There are companies around the world that market these young people into these jobs and they've got no skills or training or support or backup. They're just people that are randomly selected as dog lovers that they'll go out there and they'll do the job and the company gets a big slice for it and then they pay them award wages. Mm. So when Anley is saying, are there any signs in regards to this? If people are involved in dog behavior, there's definitely signs. Recently, I've been traveling up and down the east coast of our of Australia on our, where our resorts are located to work with our staff pre-Christmas to show them what and how the characteristics of behavior look like when a dog changes its mind or feels something about a certain stimuli it's presented with. So I call it the body and the face. So I can sort of expose to them how the body is going to change and what the face is going to look like in certain characteristics. We are showing videos of people being bitten not badly, but still showing how the change happens, how a dog will track you, how its body characteristics will change. So they get to see it in real life and we get to then, you know, like if we've got time, we pull dogs out of kennels and have a bit of a look at it. So a lot of the senior staff were clued in with that sort of stuff. They have an interest in it. Some of the younger staff were a little intimidated by it, but appreciated it because now they know when they're going to match dogs or when they're going into a kennel and confronted by a dog behaving a certain way. Now they have an idea of, what's happening around them and how they can protect themselves in those sort of situations. I showed them the video of me getting bitten by a dog. We've talked about this before where the legato bit me in the leg. Within seconds of the dog biting me, I grabbed a bed. The bed was leaning up against the wall. I grabbed it and showed the staff how I used the bed to shield the dog away and keep myself safe and build a barrier between the dog and I. Andrew Clark, who's come on board with us, he's going to be doing a lot more training with the staff. We're going to start like an internal accreditation of teaching the staff this is what you need to do to keep yourself safe at work mm-hmm. and also read dog behavior better. So he's been specializing that for years. I've been doing that for years. You've been doing that for years. There's plenty of us around the planet who've been doing that type of work for years. But the great thing is, is our company is now, we have a lot of tiers of, of management who are experts in aggressive and managing that type of behavior. A lot of these people and some of these businesses are complete facades a lot of these people are put in a situation where they're recruited online, they go out, they sit with these dogs, they don't really learn anything about the behaviour, they don't know how to read it, they don't know what the signs are, they can't read when something has transgressed from playful to active aggression or even the dog being in a defensive state. And there are so many things that they aren't exposed to or so many situational workplaces that they aren't exposed to that they just don't know what to do next. Mm. The problem for them is then they're confronted by a dog that genuinely wants to bite them and they have no idea what they're going to do and they have no idea how to stop it. Mm. So this young lady is one of thousands of people who've been bitten internationally and nationally in our own countries 
simply because nobody has ever educated them how to do it. And really myself and many of the people within the industry believe that it's reliant upon a company. If they're going to employ people to go in and look after it, it doesn't matter if they're doing cats because cats can fuck you up as well. You know, like if you're going in to look after cats or dogs or horses or whatever like that, you should have an idea. You should be exposed to what the behavioral onset of that animal is and what you need to do to keep yourself safe in, in a situation where something horrible or deadly could arise. Mm, yeah. I think it's always super confronting when you even hear about stuff like that, you know, mm. like of someone being, yeah, because if you're a dog trainer, you, you either have been bitten or you're going to get bitten. There's no if, buts, or maybes about that. That's part of it, right? If you're a plumber, you're going to get shit on you. If you're an electrician, yeah. you're going to get zapped. And if you're a dog trainer, you're going to get bitten. It's going to be, you're going to be bitten. Yep. And for the most part, most people are going to get nipped, you know, maybe like not a skin breaking kind of bite. If you work in like working dogs, you're going to get bit for realsies. That's yep. going to happen. You're going to like have a sustained bite at some point. Like that's just the path, right? Yep. Like, and, and of course there's people who don't and won't and usually because they take extreme precautions, but complacency kicks in. Yeah. It happens. I've been bitten. I've been bitten probably two bad bites. Like I've had one, like a little shitty Jack Russell. That fucking. Well, I wasn't even working. I was driving. I think I've told this story before. I was driving down the street and this Jack Russell came running across the street. I nearly hit it and it was dragging a flexi. Like it had, I don't know what had happened. It broken what, away from someone. Yeah. And mm. it was dragging this flexi bouncing around down the street. Mm. So I ran and intercepted it. Like I, I stopped the car and where it was going, it's kind of hard to explain, but I could go around. I knew like there's only one way out where he's going and I can stop him from getting to this other road. And I like was like, stop little doggy. Like thinking I'm like the savior. <laughs> he fucking wailed me and bit me in the hand, right, yep. right on the right hand. And like a proper bite to the point where I was like, oh shit. Like I actually had to hold his bottom jaw. I was like, this bite has happened. I'm not letting you get me again. And so I wrapped my whole hand around his lower jaw and held onto his lower jaw with his canines, like into the palm of my hand mm. so that I could recover his collar and then got my hand out and handed him back to this lady who didn't even seem to care. Wow. And then I got now by a military working dog once. Like, and we spent a, like a good few minutes, me, just me and the dog in the kennel, me having to sort of talk the dog out of biting me. Yep. And that was on my forearm. But back teeth hurt like shit, but actually didn't do that much damage. Mm, lucky. Mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think it was probably your demeanor that saved you. Oh, I had to talk him out of it, but he was crazy. Like yep. he was not right. Is that um, the dog that you t was telling us about that if you didn't pat him a certain way and didn't? No, no, no. Different dog. Mm. No. So it's going to happen. You're going to get bitten. But those like maulings is what I think that Anley's sort of referring to, right? Like yeah, where absolutely. it's like there's no way out of it and how horrific that would be. And, you, you know, you can't even imagine being in that situation. One of the things that sort of amazes me when I think about this topic is, especially with rescues, like when someone gets a rescue and they bring it into their home, like because people do this every day. This is happening today, right now with, somewhere. With little children. And, and they're just like, welcome to the house, dog. Yep. Total freedom in the house. Here you go. You live here now. And like, you don't know the backstory of that dog. You don't know anything about it. And you go to bed and you've got this little dog in your home that mm. you have never met. You don't know anything about and people just give it freedom in their house. And that happens all the time. That's so amazing to me. Like it's terrifying, but that's happening every day. People are doing that all the time. And for the most part, it's totally fine. It, the dog is like, oh, I live here now and everything's fine. It maybe shits in the carpet or whatever, right? Like, but doesn't kill them in their fucking sleep. Well, the ones that do create problems, you don't usually hear about them because they're whisked off and euthanized. Yeah. Being a trainer, some of those dirty secrets 
I know about because I've been involved in the cover up. The cover up. Yeah. Well, not so much the cover up. I just know the about aftermath. it. Yes, the aftermath is yeah. probably the better way to describe it. I know about the aftermath because it's been a dog that people have come to us and said, what do you think? And we've literally laid out the law and said, here's all the precautionaries that you need to take leading up to having a relationship with this dog. Most people do them. Some people don't. One of those things that I tell people immediately is no drunken parties or no drunken episodes around the dogs because that only leads to being fucked up by the dogs. The people that have ignored me in the past, they've paid for it badly. Mm. I've either seen them or spoken to them on the phone and let me tell you, the aftermath is not pretty, but you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Mm. You, you get into those sort of silly situations once again where you let your ambitions get mixed up with your capabilities and you are going to come off second best mm. and and the dog will die. You know, yeah. In all of those situations, the dog has died as a result of it yeah. because they've pushed the dog into a very uncomfortable position. And you're right, like they've released a dog into a territory and gotten up in the middle of the night and walked out and been confronted by a dog in their lounge room. Mm. But the dog goes, hey, we don't know each other. Yeah, We're not on good terms and this is the middle of the night and I'm a bit scared. Yeah, You know, I have to be very careful and this is where the whole positive first thing came from is because I have to go out to that kennel on a regular basis. It was two weeks ago, we were, or three weeks ago I should say, we were at the peak capacity of dogs and cats here. Like the place was absolutely humping with dogs and cats. And a storm blew in, lightning and thunder was crashing all around us. It was going crazy. And the manager of the kennel rings me and says, hey, Glenn, we've got a dog that's really storm phobic. The dog has got prescribed tranquilizers from the vet and the owner in the event that a storm comes in. We didn't know this storm was coming. We weren't expecting it. No one was. It just happened. It was random. And they said, you have to medicate this dog, otherwise it'll injure itself. So by the time I got down there, and yeah, there was lightning going crazy all around us. By the time I got down there, the dog was beside itself. Mm. It was absolutely stressed out of its head. So there's a couple of things that they suggested. Give it a cardboard box and also give it its tranquilizer. The dog wasn't having a part of me giving it the tranquilizer. Yeah, I was going to say at that point there's no taking food. So now you're like. It did literally because I risked myself. But what I did was I sat with this dog and calmed it enough. It had its mouth fully open, panting from stress. And while it was doing that, I turfed the food in its mouth and then held its mouth closed. <laughs> so it, because I, I wasn't going to try and put my hand in there while the dog was so stressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I turfed it in. I'm a good shot. It just went straight down the back of the dog's throat. And while it was sitting there, like gag reflexing on it, I just grabbed its muzzle and it, and it swallowed it straight yeah, down the yeah. hatch. So then I praised the dog because it wasn't having a bar. It didn't want to eat any of the food. I had chicken. I had Devon. I had all yeah, sorts yeah. of food laid out. The dog had wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah. It was in such a hyper-aroused mode. So I got that in. I then gave it a cardboard box. It wasn't really interested in doing that. It was in with a couple of other dogs. It wasn't interested in being aggressive with the other dogs. It was just stressed out of its mind. Checked on an hour later and it looked like it just smoked a joint. It was just nice and chill. And yeah, yeah. But by that time the storm had already reduced significantly and gone off. So that was nine, 10 at night. Mm. In a situation like that, if you're alone in that sort of situation, number one, you can go to open the kennel door and the dog will charge it and come bursting out on you. You've got to be ready for things like that. These Mm. these are always things. I always put my foot at the base of the door because the dog immediately when I opened the door, the dog tried to ram its head through the door. Mm. So I held the door closed. I made sure the dog settled down I waited for the dog to move away from the door. I then went in. I then had to separate the other dogs and put them out the back. Had to then get this dog. It was quite an ordeal to get that. 
you put somebody who's inexperienced in that position when they're all by themselves in a kennel with 200 odd other dogs around them, that can light up to be a really significant event in no time at all. And that's why I've always been precautionary, not saying that other people can't do this. It's all about education. And in last episode, we talked about feel. You need to develop a feel. This is where you really need to develop a feel. If you go down there and start fucking around, you're going to be in a hurt locker in no time at all. You're going to put the dogs at risk. You can put yourself at risk. These are times where it is heavily suggested that when anybody is working in any of these type of environments, they know their subject matter inside and out. I've done this for 13 years. I've been in some confronting situations when I've been down there with dogs. I've been in, in situations where the dogs will let me in and then they'll turn aggressive as soon as I get in there. But I don't put myself in a situation where I know I can't get out of it. The bed situation, I always make sure that I'm in grabbing range of a bed, that if the dog is going to charge me, that I can move the dog. We had years ago, it was probably about six years ago now, where there was a Aussie bulldog that came in and this thing was off its chops. We banned it from coming back in here because it was just too dangerous for the staff to handle. But I went in there one night because it was freaking out again, you know, storm situation. It didn't seem to show any interest to me when I went down there. So I went in there. I made sure I had a bed with me because this was a big fucking powerful dog. The minute I went in there and closed the door behind me, this dog came for me. Mm. And he was legit. If he got hold of me, God help me. I don't know what I would have done in that situation had I not have been prepared and had I not have understood what I need to do to make sure I could prevent the dog from getting to me. But it knocked its water bucket over. It had pulled it into the middle of the room and the dog was panting like crazy. So I had to make sure I kept the dog hydrated. That's the only reason why I went into the room. Dog couldn't escape. There was no other problem. It wasn't going to hurt itself. I just needed to rescue the water bucket and get the dog hydrated. But, oh, my God, when that dog came from me and I had the bed in front of me, like it literally bounced me into the wall. It hit me with such ferocity. It wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't like stopping. It was just that I'm pretty good at moving that bed and my self-preservation kicked in as well. So I was literally in there for five minutes dancing around, tiring this dog out to the point where I could stabilize and, and hip and shoulder the dog away from me to the point where I intimidated the dog to try it again. So then I was able to get out and I thought, holy shit, the adrenaline that was racing through my body, by the time I get out, closed the door, I literally just slumped up against the wall and just sat in the corridor for about a minute or two, having to collect my thoughts and realizing that could have gone really bad really quickly. Mm. But it's something that working with working dogs, being in that environment for a long period of time, I'm not ashamed to say I'm pretty fucking good at it. But what if it was somebody else? Mm. Well, and I think that's the thing as well, like, I think a lot of people who deal in dogs have never seen a dog that really wants to hurt you. Mm, Or a person. Yeah. You know that. You know what it's really like to have somebody really want to dispatch you. Yeah. But, I mean, I've also had that with a dog. I mean, like, I can think of a dog we've spoken about in the past, like one of the Vic Pole dogs, Mm. that Pope. I did a scenario with him one day at one of the gold schools I was in a bus. They have like a bus that they use for assaulting at the army base, right? And wasn't dog, it Ben Goetz's dog? It wasn't then. It was his at the gold school, but mm. then he sold it to Vic Pole and it's their dog. That's right. Yeah. The dog had had multiple live bites at that point and we're doing a scenario. I was in the bus and the dog was meant to like find me in the bus. I did this big area search. But the way that the dog was searching meant that he didn't come in the front of the bus. He caught my scent from the back. 
and the back window of the bus had been recently blown out in like a explosive exercise thing. So there was broken glass like at the back there mm. and it's safety glass, but still like it, you know, I didn't want the dog getting hurt on it. And I knew that he was going to send me from the back and I was imagining this dog getting kind of stuck in the broken glass. So I thought, oh shit, I better run up. And in my head, I'm imagining me kind of feeding him a bite as he's trying to jump in and getting kind of not being able to get through the back window of the bus. I'm imagining me kind of giving him a forearm and pulling him in over the glass yep. so that it's safe. I saw how fucking went. I start running down as that dog steeples into the bus. Like like a torpedo. Yeah, it doesn't touch yeah. the sides. And mm-hmm. he caught me weird, right? And so like I couldn't give a proper presentation. I was off kilter. I caught him. Like he, he kind of got me on the shoulder like as I was trying to sort of get to it. And it was a weird bite. But that dog's fucking trying to kill me. And not in a way of like, you know, I'm in the bite suit and he's biting as hard as he can. You know, I've worked hundreds of dogs and I've been bitten by dogs that have bit for realsies, but it's in the suit and it's all very controlled and the dog can target properly and it's all those things, It's right? not like a cougar trying to crush your neck. Yeah, and he's not an unstable dog. Like, you know, I've worked plenty of dangerous dogs that are nervy and shitty on the bite and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. And that's dangerous. You've got to be careful. But you know you're doing that because you're fixing the issue. So you've got all the things in place. This is a dog that's bitten plenty of people for realsy and yep. has caught my bite suit at a funny angle and I'm kind of stuck. And it's a, it was a real fight. Like, I mean, I managed it. I didn't get bit, but I had to say the hand. As soon as the handler came in the bus, I was like, dude, we need to deal with this. Like, we're not playing out the scenario. You need to make sure that he doesn't fucking come over and crush my neck. Yeah. But I think very precious few people in the industry have worked a dog or even seen a dog that looks at you and says, like, I'm going to fucking kill you, mm. right? Like, I have intent to do that. And not like I'm not playing some fun game. Like, I am going to crush you. And that's the dog really thinks that. And I think, you know, that's a terrifying thing when you don't know it's coming and you're not ready for that, you know, like when you're not expecting that. And I think precious few people have actually seen that for real. Then the problem, I think when you see like these people that have been torn to shreds and killed by a dog, for example, it's usually that there is a very, like in my guess, and I've seen sort of a similar thing play out is that if you're walking a bunch of dogs, especially because this relates to Anley saying that it's usually not the owner of the dog. When you're walking a bunch of dogs, you might have a very stable, powerful dog that is not going to do anything weird, but has the capacity to do it. Right. And then you might also have like a nervy, shitty sort of dog that will maybe come at you because it gets fearful and like it's leash reactive and it comes back up the line. But your reactions to that nervy dog in the presence of the other one can make you the prey of that other dog. Mm. And then you're in big trouble. And I think that's when you hear about people being set on. It's the frenzy of the pack. And I think that very often it's like there's a dog that causes it and he by himself would be easy to handle. He might nip you and kind of run away or whatever, but he sets into motion the other dogs that are like, oh, it's on, right? Like, And and if you get one of those in the crew that is like, oh, that's flicked the switch in my mind and I'm going to kill you. And they don't need to be a a dog that's trained in doing that. They just need to be a dog that has the capacity for that. And that's Mm. why, you know, it's often pits. Like it's gameness. It's those dogs that just, it flicks the switch and is like, oh, you're prey. I'm into this. And then now they're all into it. And I've seen plenty of videos of that. You see like uh, where people break into a house. 
I remember seeing a video, it was in South Africa, where it was like a security camera footage where a guy jumps the fence. The first dog that gets to him is just kind of scared and it's like a- Checking um, him out. Yeah, well, it's like a bailer. Like yep. it's like barking at him and nipping at him and whatever. And he sort of is like, ah, whatever. But then another one comes and he shows like, and they're both just kind of shitty. And then he's moving, they're kind of getting, but then it's the frenzy. And mm. then the two of them, are, their courage kicks in and they went from like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about this to like, no, I'm going to kill you. They do. They just shred this guy in the video. I think that's the issue with multiple dogs that you don't know. It's the weird formula. I think that when people are set on by the pack of dogs, change out one of those dogs, that may not have happened. You know, like it's that perfect storm of the situation got created by one dog and by himself, he would you know, just be a pain in the ass. He'd get a bruise and rip pants, but that sets off another dog that mm. then is like, Oh, I'm into it. And then you get dogs who are like, okay, like, <laughs> but that's what happens. You know what I mean? And, and I think that as people, we've kind of forgotten or divorced ourselves from the idea that in nature, weakness attracts violence. Yep. And so, yes, it does entirely. Yeah. So when, mm. when a dog comes at you and you're worried about it and you move in a way of like, oh, I have to escape that bite like you would, then that can just trigger something in another dog that sees you do that and goes, oh, I have to bite you now. Right. And if you've got four dogs that aren't yours and you do that to one of them and the other three were totally fine, it can set them off and bring them back at you. Have now, you seen the video of the guy? It's either daycare or rescue and there's about 30 dogs in the yard Something happens, and I think it's a golden retriever or something like that, starts the bite, and then all of the other pack come running in, and before you know it, you can't even see him. Mm. He is just totally engrossed with dogs. So I I don't know how that played out, but that guy got overwhelmed and absolutely hammered by dogs that were just sort of playing around him until one dog escalated it, and then the situation turned quite dire in no time at all. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, as I say, like that, your fluffy – little cavoodle who's never shown aggression ever before in his life will when everybody else is, yep. you know, like when the whole frenzy gets going and it's just that pack madness. And it's like, you see this play out in humans. Like it happens in, you see like when fights break out and people just start punching each other on the sidelines. Yeah. Right? They love like it. it. It's yeah. just like, aha, the madness. And we're into it. Especially a riot. Yeah. Let's say for example, you've got police versus citizens. If, as you said, if, if somebody topples a cop, or anything like that, they think, let's get in there and start booting into it. And all of a sudden, you'll see people just piling in from left, right and centre, rocks, pickets, all sorts of things start flying. Yeah, and skirmishes break out all over the place because people, like, it's just the frenzy, it's like, it spreads like that. Mm. But anyway, so this is not common, but I think in answer to Hanley's question, like, that's how it happens. Usually it's the like, because when you've got a dangerous dog, you know you've got a dangerous dog. And and if you know, exactly as you said, if you really should be educated and it should be know what's going on, if you take the right precautions, it's all going to be fine. It's when you have like a nervous, sketchy dog and a powerful dog or multiple of them, that's the sort of combination that can bring on real mm. problems. When they're not yours, when the dog is just like, hey, I'm cool with you, whatever, but like I don't I don't get dicked around by people and you walk on that dog on the leash and everything's fine, but then you suddenly become prey to that dog because of the actions of another dog. That dog can just flick the switch in its mind and go, You're the you're a rabbit and I'm a wolf. Yep. The dog's not even thinking. Like it's not like the dog's like attacking you for a reason. He's just like, you have to be attacked. I don't know why, but Mother Nature says this is what I have to do. So yeah, it shit's dangerous. But I think that it's not common, obviously, but I think that not 
taking risks. That's what I think. Like I just see the amount of risks people take with dogs they don't know is terrifying to me. It's not only that. There is a common misconception out of there which was proved time and time again. There's a lot of people who believe that their dogs are natural protectors. And if you go back through the archives of Canine Paradigm episodes, we've touched on this element before. However, it is one that always amuses me and still comes up in fucking conversation where people will say, oh, my dog's never been trained, but he's a natural protector. And I said, of what? What is he naturally protecting? And they think the answer to that is me. Well, it's me. Your dog is naturally protecting its lack of courage of itself. Mm. Like it, that's all it is. It's protecting its own ass and calculating, do I bite if all else fails or do I run out of this situation? Mm. In proven times, and I've seen it with my own eyeballs on multiple times, where we've padded people up who've never received biting, so they don't understand the whole concept of biting a padded bodysuit or anything like that, where we've padded people up, put them on the ground before and start wailing into them, and the dog will bite the owner. Yeah, They sit there with this look of complete disbelief, and I understand that. Like it's the first time they've ever felt – It is. It's heartbreaking. It's the first time they've ever felt entirely betrayed by their own dog. But to the dog, as you said before, it's part of that frenzy. You're on the ground, something's happened, I'm excited about this, I don't know what to do, and they just run in and bite a limb. Yeah. And it's usually the person laying on the ground flailing around. It doesn't matter that you. They don't look at you and go, oh, hang on a minute, let me get your odour. Oh, sorry, that's Dad, I can't bite him. Mm. Obviously, I've had no training at all, but I've got to dispatch this person on top. Yeah. They don't calculate it like that. And you've got to forgive him for that because, again, You're talking about a complete lack of training and conditioning to understand how to overcome a situation like that. Yeah. If you ever get in a fight yourself, like I've been involved in many over years because I've been a doorman, I've been involved in martial arts, I've been a shit for for many reasons. (laughs) There was a time in my life where I, I enjoyed getting in a, you know, having a bit of a weekend knock around. I'm ashamed of some of them and proud of others, but there's been situations where I would never say that I've been entirely confident that it's always going to go my way. Your adrenaline starts surging, your cortisol starts thumping through your body, your heart rate goes up, you feel it all the time. When you learn how to control that, when you're doing boxing and martial arts and you get better at it, you start to understand how to make that work for you. But when it's raw and it's wild, all the training you've had, and I think we've said this before, is that you sink to the level of training that you actually have. Yeah. Unless you're conditioned and unless you actually know how to fight properly, how to have form, how to think your way through what your opponent's doing, how to maintain distance, how to play that my space, your space game, it's a fucking shit show leading up to that. Mm. Leading up to that, it's like two people looking like windmills to swinging fists and feet around <laughs> at each other and cursing and swearing and yelling and and all the people that I've been pulling off each other in nightclubs and stuff, it was the same sort of stuff. Mm. People beating their chest like gorillas, running in, and it's just a complete and utter shit show. And it's the same thing for dogs when they get in that same comparable situation. I think when people say my dog will protect me and they you know, can regale a story about where they you know, think that they observed that happening – I think more often than not, the dogs are just resource guarders. Absolutely. And, and so like, yeah, it could very well be that the dog sees you as a resource and is 
guarding its resource and even may do that from other people. Mm. More often than not, it's to dogs. You know what I mean? Like Valerie's a resource guarder of the pram, right? So yeah. like she's not dangerous, but I don't let other dogs around the pram with her because she doesn't like other dogs being near the pram. And people will observe that and go, oh, she's protecting the baby. It's not. It's just it's a resource, mm. right? Like she doesn't like other dogs being around it. And the way to know that is don't put a baby in the pram and see what she's behaving like absent of the baby. Mm. And you'll find that 99 times out of 100, the behavior will still be there. Yeah. I think more often than not, it's that. And, and, but I, like, I do believe that there are some dogs that have a protection instinct and will like, you know, if you front them a little bit, they'll, they'll offer you some gusto back, but they're not going to engage correctly. You know what I mean? Early in your life, in your career, and I think Cam Ford came up with this concept a while ago in one of his podcasts is that we take on the dogma of our early teachers and the old mate down the road. Yeah. So they tell you a story and you're so impressed by that and you're impressionable and you'll take their story and run with it and you'll tell that to eons of people as well. Yeah. yeah. You know, and you'll carry that all through your life until someone comes along like you, Pat Stewart, and goes, that sounds like fucking bullshit. <laughs> and then you'll be left questioning yourself and thinking, maybe it was bullshit. Maybe I have relentlessly carried a torch for somebody that is not true. Yeah. Passing on someone else's lie. Yeah, pretty much. Or it's just a tall, drunken story that has evolved and it sounded interesting at the time. But then as you get older and you start to see more things and you experience it yourself and see it with your own eyes, you learn not to discount that some things are possible. Mm. I remember this is probably a story that I've bored people before, but it's it's important to acknowledge that when Boyd and I were doing the first timers program with Harley, we had to change what we were doing all the time because Harley could read what we were doing by our body language and it was a conditioned behaviour, like same thing happening all the time. So we had to come up with codes and colours and all, all sorts of things and Harley kept, like it took him no time at all before he read the play and go, oh, that's what I'm going to do. And he would break the command. He would just go off and do the behaviour anyway. So rather than me looking like I had absolute control of him, I looked like a fucking clown mm. standing there while my dog was going into autopilot and doing the, He did everything picture perfect, yeah. everything. He did the hold and bark when he was supposed to. He did the bite when he was supposed to. He did the out when he was supposed to, but he, he was doing it absence of any cues for me. Yeah. So we started changing things and it, like Harley would just fucking adapt to it all the time. He was such a prick. And then I said to Boyd, mate, this is fucking hard. This is almost becoming impossible because he knows – And Boyd ripped into me like he fucking went, he wailed on me. He goes, mate, he doesn't fucking know. That's the most anthropomorphic, stupid fucking thing I've ever heard you say that's come out of your mouth. He said, Glenn, you should know above and beyond all of the other people here that that's almost impossible. So for the next couple of weeks, we were changing things and Harley kept doing it. And Boyd turned around as we were walking back from the demo and he goes, he knows. (laughs) (laughs) That was an interesting moment for me because Boyd, three weeks prior to that, was ripping three sheets of shit out of me. And then had to concede that he does know he can adapt and he can read to those sort of things. And we've conceded that dogs are far more intelligent at at times at things than we really understand them. We're still limited to the complete understanding how animal minds and how animal behaviours work. We know what the science is telling us. We do know things that we feel and see ourselves. Like, But prior to science actually coming out and saying, yeah, well, this is accredited research now, there are many people that have been involved in animal behaviour for years saying, yeah, well, I've been telling people this for years. I have been telling people things about, you know, especially de-sexing. Before Karen Becker got up and made a a public disclaimer about all the damage that early de-sexing can do by removing the 
the hormone reproductive system from animals. I used to say that for years before that, I had no scientific credibility at all. But if you look at it and you look at the endocrinology system and so forth, you realize that ripping that out of your body, that was designed to be there for a reason. And in absence of that, what horrors are going to transpire? She blew the whistle on it and said, all of this is real and it is actually happening to male and female dogs when you remove their sexual organs at early times. So things like that, for years I used to get shit from people for not de-sexing my dogs. For years people used to say to me, it's so irresponsible. I just said, I don't feel this is the right thing to do. Mm. Doing it when I can easily restrict my dogs and confine them. I never had my dogs running around the neighbourhood and, you know. Unwanted pregnancy. Unwanted pregnancy. Well, there was one. Where, <laughs> there was one. I, I've got to own up to it. I have. To, I do have to own up to it. When I rented a property these new people moved in unbeknownst to us and the fence between our properties was rotting and the landlord wouldn't replace it. Harley got through it and mated the dog. So (laughs) there was one time where that did happen. That wasn't fun. (laughs) But you learn from that, right? You have one experience with that and, you know, I went out and repaired the fence myself. I went and bought panels and my mate who was a chippy, him and I fixed the the entire fence and made sure it never, ever happened again. Mm. So yes, like everybody else, I learn things through errors happening and I try not to repeat those behaviors. All right. Should we move on? We should. Zoe Needy says, bit more of a behind the scenes question. How do you guys feel you've changed or stayed the same as far as the way you structure your podcast and the content you cover since the single digit episodes in the beginning, especially now that you're at almost a quarter of a thousand episodes? Are there things you miss doing or having, things you don't miss, like old equipment that broke on you early days in the podcast things? To be honest with everybody, we completely wing it how we do episodes. We don't really have a mass planning strategy on how we sit down and yeah. and do everything. Our creed with the canine paradigm has always been to be as raw and as honest as we possibly can about the conversations we're having. Mm. Rather than try and make it like a, a radio production where we're rehearsing what we're talking about, I'm telling you this is how it literally goes. Pat comes around, he walks in the door, we talk about all the shit that we haven't caught up with for a period of time. He drinks a coffee. We come in here and go, okay, what are we talking about? <laughs> oh, no, we sometimes have like an idea of what we want to talk about. We have an idea. We're like, you know, when we're doing this, but true, the majority of times we sit down and go, have we got a topic in mind? Yeah, true. Yeah. I think for me, one thing like I'll admit is, yeah, we used to religiously record on a Tuesday morning. So we can and, and we have, have guests. guests. Yeah. And that's what's been tricky now since both of us sort of doing different stuff mm. we record like it's 9 30 on thursday night you yep. know like so we haven't got a, a rigid time which means it's hard for us to get guests and we don't even know very often we cancel at the last minute and then have to do it online or i'm out here after training in the middle of the night doing it and so it's really hard to get a guest because we can't give them any timings yeah so and i miss having people like that because that was one of the things i really loved doing about the show was like asking people questions and finding out interesting stuff you yeah know? And so I we do have to get back that. into that. We do for sure, mm. but it's just finding the time. And I mean, finding the time regularly, like unlocking that in, we really need to to do that. But one thing I do appreciate the, about the podcast is like, and I'm sure people are pretty aware of it, is like I come to my own understanding of things out loud. You know, like there's very often here where it, 
I'm literally working through my own thoughts mm. on how do I feel about something and just kind of thinking out loud and explaining that. And I, I appreciate that, you know, cause you, you would maybe not bother doing that for a full hour by yourself. You know, you might sort of, it, it's too hard. To, I don't want to think about it, but when people ask difficult questions, you know, sometimes my answer is not, well, it's never staged. I'm reading it and then I'm sort of coming to terms with how I feel with that. But even when we don't do these types of questions, when it's just me and you talking, like very often I'm as surprised by the things that I'm saying <laughs> as other people, right? Mm. So like I, I enjoy doing that and having a platform to do that is excellent. Sometimes I see people on Facebook or wherever going on these big rants about, you know, their feelings on the dog space or whatever. And I think it's easy to just brush past that. But then I also sort of have to remember that, you know, we get to give our opinion on lots of things and people choose to listen or not, but we are, I don't type it out on Facebook. I'm not going on like a diatribe, but people want to feel heard because, you know, they've got their own opinion. They want to put it out there. Yep. And I often think like, oh God, why would you put that on Facebook? But then I realize like, oh, I just don't type it. I just say it in this microphone <laughs> and, and offer my opinion on, you know, like my unsolicited opinion yep. goes out to thousands of people per week. And so- that's something I appreciate about the show. Mm. But I think changing us and the show from the single digits especially is that I feel a lot more comfortable in saying whatever, you know, like we just spoke about before, like I feel a lot more comfortable in saying whatever I feel like on today and tomorrow I might feel totally different and like I'm just at peace with that. I'm a work in progress, man. I'm I'm like nobody's perfect, fucking least alone us. And yeah, of course. I think that that's one of the things that I've enjoyed and, and we set ourselves up for success by doing that right from the start by saying – we reserve the right to change our opinion and we flip flop on lots of different things depending on how we feel. Indeed. Circling back to Zoe's original question about the early days versus now, I feel so much more comfortable in talking now than what I used to talk about. Like mm. it was, a, I was very apprehensive in the beginning, like having a microphone pointed at me was very intimidating. Mm. To be honest, it's one of my favorite times of the week is to sit down with you and have a conversation. Yeah. Having an intelligent conversation where we're talking about things or just mashing things out. We've made disclaimers before that we're not proclaiming to be the experts of anything in the world. We're just people who are interested in talking about dog behavior and even people behavior. Mm -hmm. It's a subject very dear to our hearts and evolving journey that we've had through the early episodes to now has been a very cathartic and very soothing time. I actually feel like it's part of my weekly meditations. Yeah, for sure. To sit down with you, which I really enjoy and talk to people out in the industry and knowing that it has such a profound effect on so many people is very heartwarming. Mm. You know, like I said before, it's important when I see people sending in their their screenshots of where they're either playing an episode or they're listening to it while they're walking along with their dog or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I love that stuff. I love it too. And I, I make sure I put it up on our Instagram stories because I like to share that the community is involved with us. Mm. It's nice to see those sort of things mean a lot to me. Getting back to Zoe's original point, she talked about equipment that we might have missed. Nothing broke. Nothing that we've had ever broke. We just upskilled or upscaled our technique or our equipment that we've actually got. And because we've been very blessed and fortunate by our Patreon supporters and we did a promise from the beginning that we weren't going to use the Patreon money to stuff it in our pockets. We've never done that. We've mm. never paid ourselves. We've bought some cool stuff with it. We bought the laptop and we've got programs that we use. We've got really nice, the OCY Ultima microphone arms. We've got nice mics. We've got really good equipment yeah. that we can do quality gear with. You know, the chairs that we're sitting in, the table we're sitting at, all Patreon bought all of this for yeah. us. 
So everything that we've got, we've still got, I've still got all the original, the very original Yamaha mixing board with all the weird little dials all over it. I've still got that sitting up in my cupboard. Do you remember when the third episode or whatever, when Birdie was the first guest? Yep. It took us like two hours to get started because we only had two microphones and then you had that like third shotgun microphone. That's right. And we couldn't, neither of us knew anything about sound mixing or whatever. And there was like a weird echo. Like now I would take one look at that and go, oh, you can't use that microphone like that. That yep. is, if you want to use that microphone, it has to go in the middle of the room and everybody has to use that microphone because yes. you're going to be picking up like in one second, I would look at that. We spent at least two hours. We, we just could not work it out. Couldn't, why there was a weird echo and reverberation and there was that. I was like, no shit. Like you're using the totally wrong kind of microphone. But wasn't that fun working all that out? Yeah. Well, like it was frustrating at the time, but yeah. you look back on it now and it was really fun that we got to go from two goofy dudes that knew nothing about podcasting at all. Like I listen to episode one with me coughing and saying um and everything yeah. all the time. It's fucking horrible. Yeah. But the thing that I did learn when I was listening to other people talking about how to develop podcasts and talking online, they said and warned of that. Mm. They literally said your first episodes are going to sound completely different to when you find your groove. Yeah. And they said it's unbeknownst when that's going to happen, but one day you'll just find your groove and you'll fit into it. And you'll feel like this is a comfortable pair of shoes. I like doing this. Yeah. And I'm at that stage now where when I sit down, I pull things up. We do our little five-minute tester to make sure that everything's running through audition and the sound looks right. Even the other day when you were at home, I realized that there's something wrong with the sound because I could see that the waveform wasn't formed properly. And I realized that for some reason the settings for doing it over Zoom were completely off skew. Mm. While you and I were talking, I was able to just gradually dial, dial that down and recover it so you didn't notice there was a difference and people at home didn't notice there was a difference but it just wasn't so overwhelming and and pitching out yeah those sort of things have been fun to learn about yeah it's been great and like you i do miss talking to more guests i'd like to get more back into it the poor guys that run the dog trainers podcast have been forever trying to get you and me to do a podcast episode with them yeah so like a pre-meeting thing and then never yeah. Yeah, oh, they're still asking me. They still want us to do that show. But you've had things on. I've had things on. It's just, again, the time of day that we can sit down and actually get together and do this has made it difficult for us. But, yeah, those sort of things. Looking forward to getting back into more guests. Appreciate where we came from. Appreciate the journey that we've learned. Really appreciate the fact that we've got all this lovely quality equipment. We're very blessed that we we have a very supportive community behind us. Mm. All right. Caitlin Barty says, probably a small topic or something I may have missed, but what is the difference in the make of the bite work tools, i.e. the tug, material options such as fire hose, jute, synthetic, leather, etc.? Is it the trainer's preference or is there a specific way to know which material is best for your dog? I think, you know, like you, you train a dog that everyone trains a dog with, but there are different tools that are going to give you different effects. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, like I like training with the Durofoam balls. I like those because the ball doesn't necessarily translate as much to the tug. So like, I think that when you're playing, like if you intend to do bite work with a dog and you're going to play with a, use a wedge or something like that as a reinforcer, you do have to be a little bit careful in the way that you let the dog bite that because it will affect the grip style mm. and blah, blah, blah. Whereas I think with the ball, there's much less carryover. There is some, but it, there's less. I like those Durafoam ones because they're rubber and you can rip them out of a dog's mouth and the ball will just tear. You're not going to wreck the dog's teeth. You know, they're not going to be ingested. They're soft. So if a dog, you know, smashes into it, whatever, they're not going to damage themselves. But I think the type of, you know, whether you're going to use linen or jute 
or the synthetic, the fire hose stuff, like all that kind of stuff is relevant. There are reasons why you would and wouldn't, but I think that you're kind of getting into the detail there. Unless you know those, you probably aren't going to benefit from them anyway. And you find that with different types of tugs have like different or different even brands of linen have different weaves. Some are really tight, some are looser, and you you might want one over the other to achieve different outcomes. Different brands of bite suits are you know made with different linen, and you find like the tighter weaves are slipperier and therefore harder for the dog to get yeah. a grip. Some of the looser weaves are you know nicer for the dog, but also don't last as long. Like there, there's middle ground. There's, yeah, so that there's all these different things. But I think use whatever you want. Right, it doesn't really matter if it's just your reinforcer. Use whatever you want, but there could be a particular reason why you would use a particular thing in order to reinforce in a particular way and achieve mm. a particular outcome. So, I think whenever you're reinforcing your dog with any kind of toy, that you know you you make sure that the dog doesn't develop a, a preference. Like it's okay for a dog to have a preference, but they can't prefer one thing at the expense of another. Mm. I think for me, if I'm working a dog and it like shows me like, no, I don't want that thing. I want the other thing. Well, the other thing goes away and, yep. and you only get that thing until you commit to it. Yep. And the main thing I think when you, you know, interacting with a dog via a tug or anything like that is that you keep in mind that that is just the game that you're playing, but you are playing together. Mm. That's sort of the main thing to remember in that me and you can play Scrabble and then we can stop playing Scrabble and we can play Monopoly. But in both instances, we weren't actually playing Scrabble we were, or Monopoly. We were playing with each other and that happened to be the game we were playing. Yep. And that's the way to think about it with any of the toys that you'll interact with the dog with. I think that don't get too locked into this is the toy. It's just this is the means by which we are communicating, but we are communicating with each other. Marketing in a lot of those fields is absolutely a miraculous thing because people get fixated and they are trained to do this by marketers to make you think that the answer is always out there. Mm. It's not within your grasp. Sometimes people have had the very best tool in their hands at the right time, but they sometimes believe that the grass is greener on the other side, you know, and they'll look to what their neighbor's got and think, oh, fuck, now I've got FOMO. I need to have that to be the world's best dog trainer. And then they'll get that. I'll tell you how I know that, right? I bought a guitar and that guitar sounded a bit creaky and it was making these shimmering sort of noises. And I thought, fuck this guitar, it's no good. So I bought another one and it did exactly the same thing. And then I got a good guitarist to play the guitar and he sat there and made that fucking thing light up and sound magic. And I I thought, ah, it's me. That, you know, this guitar I had all along is capable of singing beautifully. It was just my finger placement and the way I was doing that. And I've done exactly the same thing with bike toys before. Funny story, I went to this company where I was buying some equipment from them. They didn't do anything wrong. They just had these sleeves there that were a fraction of the price. And they were, you know, French linen looking sleeves. And I thought they look great. And they're like probably a quarter of the price that they should be. I bought two. Once I got home and I I trained them with a few dogs, I realized why they're a quarter of the price because every single dog that was trying to bite them just came spinning off the other side of them. Yeah. They were literally like- The linen was woven too tight. It was way too tight and the dogs couldn't get a proper grip and fix their teeth into it. So they were just literally zipping straight off the other end. Even good biting dogs, uh, I put Max on it. So I back-tied Max, our shepherd we used to have, and he was a fucking crocodile when he bit. Even him, it was just zipping straight out of his mouth. Yeah. So I realized straight away- 
that's why they've been cheap. I would have liked it if they actually said to me, but the person who probably sold them to me had no idea. Like yeah. they were just in the Well, in but the, the thing is as well, like that's a tool for a specific use. Like yep. I've been searching for that. I, I've been trying to find a really tight weave linen for a shorty, like a, a cover for a shorty sleeve that is super tight because I want to use it on budgie work. I want the dog not to be able to grip it. Yep. You know what I mean? So like there's- well, I think I still have them, so you're welcome. Oh, really? Yeah. Is it that green one that's out there? That's like a left-handed. There's sleeve? two. There's, yeah, there's it's that two. piece of shit. So I've used that for exactly that, but it's yeah. a it's a right arm sleeve. It's a pain in the ass to use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so poorly put together that you can feel the bites through it. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, but like that's the function of those things. So that's mm. what I think. Like when you look at, it's like. If you want to build frustration, perfect. Yeah, or or just like increase the grip strength and all yeah. that kind of stuff, you know. But like I think. All those bizarre and peculiar toys that you see, you know, not like the pet shop ones that are just leftover sex toys for the most part, you know, like the mold <laughs> went wrong. Um, but at like the in the bite work, you, you see people like there's specific things to achieve a specific outcome. Yep. And there's progressions, you mm. know. When we did that decoy day thing, I had like all my gear laid out and we're showing people like to develop a dog start to finish and do it in the way that we're going to talk about this is all the gear that you need. And mm. there's several thousand dollars worth of gear here. But then I went through and I was like, this is the stuff you don't need. And people waste money and stuff. Like I did that when I first started decoy. I remember I bought like the Euro Joe leg sleeves, level one to five. Yep. Well, my level one, my puppy one gets used and my level four or my level three get used. But who the fuck's using a level two and a level five like leg sleeve? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you- Once the dogs get a an idea of them, they just go, all right, let's level right up. Yes. But yeah. like, but I mean, like you don't need the full progressions. You yeah. just need but the But you ones. think you do at the no, start. No, that's right. You, mm. And so it's easy to waste a lot of money. Yeah. But, you know, like, and same as a chomp looks exactly like an IGP sleeve. So yep. like people look at that and go, oh, well, like I'll get one. And then you get an IGP sleeve with a big wet, like a big fin in it. And it's a totally different thing to a chomp that achieves a totally different purpose. Mm. You know, so like I think with all these sorts of things, there's all these different tools and they serve a purpose. Yes. And you use whatever, you're right, whatever works for you. But Well, that's the important thing, right? Use yeah. what works. Mm. Yeah. But knowing that there might be a reason why you would say, uh, that's not the toy for this. That's not the and tool for this. And it's only experience this. that will tell you. Yeah. Mm. Or someone goes. Or somebody's experience. Yeah. yeah. Goes, hey, try this instead. Yep. All right. Jen Frelick says, what do you think about potatoes? I like them, just in case anyone was wondering. Well, it depends on how they're cooked. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Mashed potatoes with a nice bit of butter and some chives in it. Can't go wrong. One day I would like to commit to the potato hack. Have, I, have we spoken about that? Mm, I don't know. The potato hack is a weight loss thing whereby you bake potatoes. You're not allowed to put any salt or oil or anything on them. You just wash them and bake them. Mm-hmm. And you sit down and you eat as much potatoes as you want. Right? You're allowed to, there's no calorie restriction. You just eat as much potatoes as you feel like eating. Right. But it tastes like nothing. And so you, it, it's like for teaching yourself what being full feels like because you won't eat one more mouthful than you need to because there's no pleasure that comes from it. Right. And then, so you sit there with the whole tray of potatoes, you eat as much as you want, and then you put that in the fridge. And then when you want to eat again, you rebake it and you eat the same giant tray of potatoes and you eat as much as you want and then you put that back in the fridge. And what happens with potatoes is like the starches change every time they're heated and cooled mm-hmm. and by the time you've done that like four or five times, it's a, almost a completely different thing that becomes this incredible gut fuel. Like it's a microbiome fuel. It's actually fantastic for you. You right. do that with meat and you'll die, right? Like yep. you, but you'll get salmonella. But uh, with potatoes, it's fine to do. So you do that for like a week 
of just heating, cooling the same potatoes, by the back end of the week, you're doing incredible gut health things, but also you learn to regulate, like, how much do I actually need to eat? Mm-hmm. And, and what does actually being full feel like? Right? That's called the potato hack. Well, if anybody's done it, I'm eager to know if it worked for you. All right. Jamie Charlotte says, I'd like to have a discussion about the framework to protection work. I feel like the obedience framework is well fleshed out and I'd like some information from the other side. How does it start from level zero and the framework, the mentality on how to get to level 100? Thank you. My opinion on this is Jerry Bradshaw basically wrote the Bible on this. You just read controlled aggression. Yep. It's in there. It's start to finish the framework that you're asking for. It's in that Mm -hmm. Uh, start to finish, start on the strap, finish on the suit. Yep. Bounce around in between. The book is laid out. It's a great book. Revisit the book. I do that every now and again. I'll pull out the book. I'm an annotator. I have a, a hard copy version of that. I was having this discussion with someone just the other day. I actually enjoy rereading books and seeing my notes in them because mm-hmm. I like will write all over it. And then on the second read, I use a different pen or a different colored pen. And then you can sort of, I'll retake notes and I'll even take notes on my own notes and be like, what oh, dickhead like thought this was interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's interesting to see of yourself, like what you were thinking at the yeah, time. Yeah. Like yeah. there's parts in it that I think now I'm like, Oh, that's common sense but then i can read my own interpret like my own reading of it from six years ago whenever i've read it and i'm like oh wow that's amazing it's common sense when you're when you're experienced in it but not when you're learning yeah that's an interesting concept i think controlled aggression is as close as it gets it's a very well written book and obviously with jerry he's a person who agonizes with his thoughts and you know has taken the time to really flesh this out and to think about it clearly and put words into practice. And that's the great thing about what he's been able to do there. But one thing I will say is nothing is entirely set in stone. And again, going back to your quote, which you graced us with some episodes ago, which says the flexible shall prevail. Mm -hmm. I've always known that. I think that quote is probably elegantly placed because that to me is in line with use what works. Mm. Fundamentally, the way I look at anything is some dogs throw you a wicked curveball sometimes and you have to look at them and you have to think, well, this is just not going the way it should. The dog has got capabilities, but for some reason, it's almost the best word to describe it is bizarre. Mm. It's completely different to any other experience I've had. And again, I believe in the last episode we spoke or even the one before that, that's what you and I agreed that all of that experience and having that breadth of knowledge gives you is that you can reach into different knowledge banks and saying, I've seen something not exactly like this, but very similar. I'm going to pull that. Yeah. I can uh, make assumptions. Yeah. I'm going to pull that practice out and see how this goes with the dog at the time. So that's what I like to see with people is, yeah, there's great systems in place with everything. There's great systems of teaching we've been involved in and that other people have developed I recall a conversation you and I were having years ago and it was probably an episode, but you were saying that when you went and watched PSA one day, you realized that there were some trainers out there who were training completely different to what you were traditionally aware of Mm -hmm. and wanted to know what they were doing because ultimately they were getting PSA threes with majority of their dogs. There's an old saying that I love and I frequent regularly with students and with my own staff is that there are many roads that lead to Rome. Mm. And that's one avenue that I like to look at. There is just no absolutes. There is flexibility and there is education and there are lessons to be learned. And they're one of the things that I believe 
is the most fun part about being a dog trainer is that in the moment it'll be frustrating. You'll curse, you'll scream, you'll kick yourself. I do this every time I play guitar. And then when I realize, holy shit, it was meant to be. This made me grow. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was forged in fire through this. This is what got me through and made me become better. I've done that in dog training. I've done just driving my car or my motorbike. There's a, an amazing skill set in riding a motorbike, especially when you're traveling at, at considerable speeds and you're coming up to tight corners in braking and cornering. You know, braking and cornering in motorbiking is where, sounds silly or egotistical, but it's where boys and men are created. <laughs> you know, let me tell you, I've seen some women that make the boys look fucking backwards with their work out on the road. And those sort of things, whether you're training dogs, you're riding motorbikes, you're training guitars, whether you're an artist or anything, it doesn't matter what it is. It is all part of that frustration that leads to growth. Mm -hmm. But realizing that certain things are fixed and certain things are flexible. Mm -hmm. You've got to know when things are fixed and you've got to understand how much play you've got when it's flexible to alter and modify what happens next. Only education, only time and only working with experienced and good mentors and coaches will actually reveal that within you as well. Yeah, for sure. 100% agree. All right. Should we do one more? One more. Why not? Okay. This is an interesting one from Therese Venzarova. Mm. Therese Venzarova, that's a cool name. How do you make dogs more confident and tougher? That's a good question. I certainly believe that the way that you make them more confident and tougher is that you must start with a robust socialization system when they're young puppies. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about puppyhood into dogs, they must understand how to comprehend how to deal with everything in the world first. Prior to that, if you don't do that, you've literally fucked your dog. And all you'll do is you'll reach a compromise ceiling that will never be at full potential of what the dog was capable of. Mm -hmm. So let's say we've done that, okay? And we've got ourselves a dog that has got a very high ceiling it's very robust. It can deal with ultimately anything that you can throw at it with life. It doesn't give a fuck about people, dogs, cars, cats, birds flying around in trees, none of it. It's neutralized to the environment. The next thing that's got to be determined is what is your dog capable of? Does the dog have the genetic back blocks to be able to maintain what you're looking for in your dog? If the answer to that is yes again, then you're pretty much winning lottery ticket from there. What you do need to do, in my opinion, to progress from there is gradually and incrementally allow your dog to experience a little bit of discomfort yeah, and then slowly but surely let the dog realize life is a little hard, but then it gets good again. Yeah, And that is a seesaw and it's ratcheting upwards throughout the entire life of the dog. Life is hard. But when I rise to the occasion, it gets easy again. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to overcomplicate that. That's the way I look at how I grow my own dogs and how I try and develop them to be the best that they possibly can be. Yeah. I think there's many specific techniques, mm. you know, like you can do box work if you want to use food and you can do it through play. There's lots of different ways to do it. Or you can just do it through exposure. You don't need anything. But I think the core of trying to make a dog tougher is to expose it to something it's concerned about support it through that and have it find out that there was no negative consequence. It wasn't what it thought it was. Yeah. And that's, that's really like, you can adapt that. The specifics of that can be molded into fit, you know, many different things. Like what that looks like individually, you know, can change between you and the dog. And, and, you know, like I say, it's two very broad spectrums. If you want to do it with food, then do it in the box is a great way to do it. We've got whole tons of stuff on box training. 
And if you want to do it through play, that's a great way to do it as well. By like the competitive nature of playing tug of war, you know, you expose a dog to something it's concerned about to the point where it gives up on the tug and you win. And then it starts realizing, shit, I can't pay attention to these things. I need to demonstrate confidence by staying in the game. Mm. So like that's just two very sort of 50,000 foot view ways of doing it. But in reality, they all come down to the same thing is that you can't instill confidence without overcome like there has to be something that gets overcome and then the dog goes oh wow i did that yeah i did that and i can do the next thing and i can do the next thing and i can do the next thing and it has to be built incrementally and i think one of the things that cannot be overstated in building confidence is the return to a safe base yes so like you need to provide you're like you go with the dog and i think almost i won't say 100 percent, but very often when i see reactivity issues in dogs. I also see reactivity issues in people. Yep. And I think that when you allow a dog to practice reactivity, it is reinforced. And so for the most part, I think a lot of reactivity and like nervousness and stuff that we see in dogs is it like, of course there's genetic components. This there's weak dogs, blah, 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 all yep. of that. But I think we allow it because dogs go through weird, funky stages. Like even the, the toughest dogs I know, all have weird little fear periods, if not fear periods, just like odd stages in their development where they're caught off guard by stuff and they'll react in a way that like is not confident. And if you allow that to be practiced and expect like to, you know, time in practice, if you allow them to rehearse that behavior and worse still, that behavior is successful, which it will be because the dog will survive, Mm. right? Then the dog goes, okay, well, that's what gets me through the day being nervous, being like over aroused, barking, lunging, growling or cowering, whichever version of it you get, if you allow that to happen, then the dog has a positive outcome, then it will do it again. Mm. So it's as simple as that. You don't allow those things to happen in the the early stages. And I think demonstration is such an important part, especially with adolescent dogs. I feel like one of the biggest, most important things that people overlook is like, of course your dog's going to be weird around new people. Mm. Especially you get a you know, five-month-old dog that's hardly got any teeth. He's scared with no teeth in his head. He's worried. Like, he's got nothing that he can do and he meets a new person. You haven't seen that many people, you know. The classic story is that people get their eight-week-old puppy, they socialize the fuck out of it for two, three weeks. Then that kind of goes out the window. It's a headache to take the dog around. And then, you know, you eventually, oh, I'm going to take the dog out and take it somewhere it hasn't seen a new person in three weeks, whatever. And it sees a new person who stares right at it because it's a cute little puppy. Then, of course, it does its weird little, like, bounces around on the leash, kind of barking, lunging, growling. And in that moment, you know, most people sort of like, oh no, what's happened here? My little doggy's scared and they want to like comfort the dog. You should look at the dog like he's an idiot and be like, you idiot, this isn't a scary <laughs> person. And demonstrate, walk over to the person, engage with them and show the show the dog like, hey, this isn't anyone we need to worry about. This is our friend. This is like you, you, you've misread the situation. So demonstrate confidence mm. is one of the, I think, the most important ways to build a confident dog is to be confident yourself. And if you're not, fake it. <laughs> yep, I agree. Strong, assertive leadership. Yeah. Yep. Mando had a, he was going through a little weird period a while ago where near the front door, I've got Batten there and I've got a, like a, an umbrella. Mm. So with the umbrella, like if I open the umbrella and flap it at him, he loves it. Like he wants to come over and pray bite the umbrella. He gets really excited about it. Not that that's what I want him to do. I've just always raised him to feel very bold around the umbrella. So he gets very excited and aroused about it. But if I put that umbrella in the corner 
And when I was throwing his toy, when this is a couple of months ago, he wouldn't go anywhere near it. He was like going over in a very timid sort of fashion. Narelle said to me, oh, stop doing that. And I said, no, that's going to continue because if he wants this toy and he wants this game, he's going to have to go and retrieve it near the umbrella because that's not going to not happen anymore. He walked over to me like, oh, can you rescue it? So I put him to bed and he didn't like that. So the next day we came out, he was bringing his ball over. I threw it over near the umbrella and he went over and then he thought, no, I don't want the ball. So I put him to bed again. And the next night he came over and he thought, fuck this, I'm not going to bed. I'm going to get my ball. Yeah. So he went over and got it and I didn't make it go near the umbrella after that. The game stayed away from the umbrella. We had a fucking full-on game. He didn't have to go to bed early and we had a big game. The next day I did it again. I just thought, we'll see how he goes. Ran straight over, knocked the umbrella over and grabbed his ball and ran straight over. Yeah. So I could have freaked out about the fact that he was having that little experience, which is normal. It's progressive. But rather than that, my experience has led me, which I advise other people to do, don't pay too much attention to it. Yeah. I don't want to create a bad event for him, but he was quite safe with what he was doing. The way, the where I was putting the dog at the ball and, and the placement of it, there was no chance that he could hurt himself or knock the umbrella onto himself and cause himself a mishap. What I did want him to realize is I'm not going to rescue you from this. You're not in danger. As you said before, it's not what you perceive it to be. And you need to learn your way through this. Mm. You need to recognize, and this is where you do need to harden up and toughen up a little bit and realize even if you're a little nervous, run in there and grab the ball and run away. That's fine. I, I can deal with that fact. But not going to get the ball and just giving up entirely, that's not going to wash. We're not yeah. playing the game. And you're actually going to get negatively punished for that. Everything ends. Not only do you not get the ball, you don't get to hang out and go and sook up to me and climb onto my lap and get swaddled like a baby. That's not working either. You're going to bed, all mm. right? You can go away and think about that. And he did and he reconciled and he came up with the concept all on his own. My life is shit if I reject getting the ball. Yeah. So he quickly realized, yeah, I'm a bit scared and it's a little bit nerve-wracking. Now, couldn't give a fuck. I can put it behind the umbrella now and he'll go in there and he'll go and boldly go over and take it off. He couldn't give it. There's sometimes where he looks at it and you realize that he's, he's thinking, I don't really like the umbrella being there like that, but I'm okay with it. Yeah. It's there and it's existing and it's not doing anything to me. He knocked it the other day and it moved and he got a bit ginger about it, but then he went back again and he recovered to it and I praised him immediately and we had a bigger game and, you know, I got up and really invested the time with him because I saw – that he overcame something which would normally frighten him. But it's just that period he's going through. He's, mm. It's that secondary fear imprinting stage that he's going through. All I've got to do is just allow time to happen and recovery to happen and just bypass the behavior and allow him to realize I can get through this. I feel like it can't be overstated how amazing it feels when you're scared of something and you confront it and it turns out to be fine. Mm. Probably an example that everybody has been in and, you know, you may have zigged or you may have zagged, but probably everybody's done something along this is like jumping off of something high into water, right? Like at some point everybody's been on a diving board or a rock face or something like that where it's a thing where you're going to jump into it and there's that horrendous feeling of anxiety, right? and you're trying to build up the courage and other people are doing it and you're seeing that it's fine for them. They're fine. They jumped off the thing. They landed in the water. They swim away. They have a good time, but you've got that hollow feeling inside of you where Mm. you're like, fuck, this is terrifying. Now, some of you listening didn't jump in and you don't know that when you do jump in, 
it feels fucking amazing. Yeah. Because you went through the discomfort and you then got like the jumping in the water is whatever. That's not your reinforcer. Getting down there is not your reinforcer. It's the turning off of that discomfort via like going through it because it just stops. Whereas if you walk away from the cliff edge, it slowly decreases and then you have to sit there and confront the fact that you didn't overcome it. And you know that if you walk towards that cliff edge again, it will start again. That fear, that terror will come on again. And the only way that you have to stop it because you practice this is turning around and walking away. And I think that's what a lot of people do with young dogs is they put dogs in a a tricky position and they don't let them get through it or just kind of like demonstrate through them. Like we said, just as, as, as normal as just meeting a random person, Mm. right? Like a random person, when that dog gets that like bumps around the end of the lead, that's the same. He's got the same feeling that you get when you're standing on that cliff edge. And if you let him walk back away from it, then he's like turned off the pressure incrementally by getting away from the person. He's going to demonstrate that same behavior. But if you just go, Hey man, no, this, that's not happening. We're talking to this guy and you're going to come around to this. You're not allowed to escape, right? Like you're, I'm not going to force an interaction, but you're hanging out with me while I have this interaction. Yeah. Almost for sure. That dog is going to come around to the idea. He's going to show some appeasement because he's trying to turn off pressure then that person's going to pat him and he's going to have a wonderful time and mm. he's going to go, fuck, people are rad. I love people. And next time he gets that butterflies in his stomach, he's going to go like, well, the best way to turn this off is to confront this. Yep. And he's going to go over and be like, please pat me, sir, because this is how I've stopped that feeling in the past. So I think for building confidence, that's how you kind of got to think of it. And mm. I think that what we see is a lot of people who have never jumped off the cliff think that don't make the dog jump off the cliff. They themselves are like, no, no, don't go near the edge, right? Don't ever let the dog go near the edge. Keep him away from the edge. Don't make him feel that discomfort. But you don't know how fucking good it feels when you land in the water and you go, oh, I'm fine. I didn't get hurt. And in fact, I overcame that. I didn't acquiesce to it. Acquiesce? Yeah, acquiesce. That's a very posh way. Hopefully I used it correctly. Yeah. I didn't give in to that pressure and turn it off via inaction. Mm. I confronted it, went through it, and it felt amazing to do that. There's that sense of achievement when you do something like that. And I feel like that is the sort of thing that you want to just continually do to your young dog. Like you want to do that all the time. Like, hey, man, here's a little bit of discomfort. Overcome it, have a wonderful outcome. Here's a little bit of discomfort in a different context. Overcome that, have a wonderful outcome. And you get to the point where the dog starts to like that feeling. And that's as you like people do this exact same shit when you develop people in the same way. Mm. It's like you overcame a little thing, find another thing to overcome. And before too long, it, it's hard to find something that you that that causes any discomfort and that you can overcome. You sort of develop a bit of an addiction to it as well. Yeah. Like you well, you go hunting for it. That's that relief of like, oh, I did it. Right. And mm. and I think you know, there's a lot of people that didn't do it and they can't imagine that what that feels like because you can't imagine what that is. Like that's like, again, like we said the other day, that's like trying to describe the color purple to a blind person, right? If you've never overcome something hard and had that like just the like, oh, I did it, you don't know what that's like, Mm. right? And it's very hard to explain what that's like. I touched on it before when I was talking about motorcycling and I remember the first time I went for a run up into the twisties up at the top end of Putty. They've got a section up there called 10 Mile, which is 16 kilometres of just twisty roads. Putty Road is, by some, they call it the Widowmaker because it's killed lots of young men. It can be a dangerous stretch of road. Depends on how you ride it, depends on how you experience it. And I remember I went the first 
couple of times I went for a run up there. I went for a run with a bunch of guys that are pretty solid riders. Fuck, man, I was terrified. I was terrified the whole way. And I had some curly times where I got too close to the edge and I was just thinking, you know, I'm pushing too hard. So I backed off a little bit. But Scott, who I ride with, who's a terrific friend of mine, and he's a very, very good mentor in riding, he taught me a hell of a lot on how to really harness my skills. He's an incredible rider. He's come off in front of me. I nearly ran him over one day on a ride, and he went sliding across the road. But even the way he came off his bike and pancaked himself to the road, like, he couldn't have done it more graceful. He got up, picked himself up, picked his bike up, and I was astounded. I said, fuck, man. You know, he goes, I'm all right. I'm fine. It was a what you call a lucky off, you know, a low side of the bike. You never want to do it, but it, it happened. His front wheel slid out from underneath him. But when we ride together, him, Dave, and I, we ride very close to each other. We all are harmonized. It's like we've got a hive mind. We ride it at significant pace, and it's terrifying. Every fucking time I go, it's terrifying, but I seek it out. The way that we weave through the roads together, and we're not the fastest riders or the best riders on the road, but I'm pushing myself to a point where I'm comfortable and uncomfortable with how fast I'm riding. Yeah. You know, and when we're hitting those roads, the feeling I get from when I'm in there, it is euphoric to the point of feeling like I'm going to explode yeah. from the feelings that are crashing through my body right then. Like, it's almost heavenly. And without it, I feel deprived. It's hard to describe to a non-rider, but anybody who, like people who surf or people who do any extreme sports or even things that are dangerous, like you know when you're on that edge, sometimes you're right on the edge, like you're going extremely fast into, you know, into twisting roads and when there's a car coming on the other side of the road, you get mad, but you're just thinking, fuck, this is the best thing ever. Mm. And I see that in dogs too when they experience the highs of the adrenaline rush when they, things are a little bit dangerous but they learn to overcome it and then not only overcome it but also develop from it as well. Mm. It's the most beautiful experience. It's the most harmonising and euphoric feeling that you can feel. Not to say to anybody put yourself in terrifying situations. Like I got mentored, I've incrementally built myself up and please believe me, I'm no Valentino Rossi. I mean, that guy's got balls of steel. I can ride well and I can ride fast, but there are people out there who just, even when I'm hammering along, there are people who overtake me mm. and I look at them and go, holy shit, that's next level stuff. I don't understand, sir, because surely you're both doing the speed limit. Of course. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> However, those sort of things, like my riding now compared, I remember like even five years ago, I'm a completely different rider than what I was. And it's not to say that something won't go wrong. It's not to say that something unfortunate may happen one day. You're taking heavy risks when you're out there riding those sort of roads. But we don't do it with the intention of not coming home. Both Dave and Scott have got children. They've got wives. Nobody does it out there to be reckless or harm each other. We care about each other. All the riders that we know and ride with and we're involved with that community, we all want to do this right. But making this about dogs, it is a dog podcast. I see it in the dogs, the things that I see and think about myself. I see how I've developed my character and I've developed a strength inside myself that I doubted I'd never, I, I never believed I could ride like this, never. But incrementally staging myself up there, facing the fear and doing it anyway and being around people better than me this is what dog training is all all yeah. about too when you're trying to develop that toughness and that character of your dogs is mentor and work with people who are better than you. This is a good part of joining clubs and being involved in 
good structural plans is because these people have been through it with their dogs. The people who are creditable I'm talking about. There's people who will tell you wonderful stories and they can never reproduce it because, as you said, they never took that leap of faith. They never jumped. Whereas the people who have, they're leading from experience. They can show you how to reach those dizzying heights with your dogs and you'll think, holy shit, I didn't even believe that this amount of character was able to be produced for my dog. And sometimes your dog doesn't know that as well. It's untapped capability or potential that a good mentor, a good coach, a good teacher can extract it from your dog. Sometimes it happens before your very eyes. Like yeah. something will happen. There was a show called Quantum Leap and that's what I, I affectionately call it. I call it quantum leaping because you're bypassing the stages that normal people would say, oh, you've got to do it A, B, C, D, but you've gone A to K suddenly and you've gone, holy shit, what happened? Mm. You know, even even stages where let's not talk about working dog or biting dog stuff, but let's talk about developing complex skills in dogs. I have to coach and watch students doing complex skills with the dogs. It's part of their NDTF curriculum. When I'm watching people doing these type of things, like there'll be students who are absolutely flabbergasted that their dog made this enormous leap forward, that their jaw will drop on the ground and they'll spend more time collecting their jaw than they will be in reinforcing and or marking and reinforcing the dog for doing a behavior or even jackpotting the dog to say to the dog, the dog is in its own mind is thinking, I I don't know what just happened, but... I too want to experience this level of reinforcement again. Like something happened that was amazing and I want to get back there again. And that's what sometimes people don't realize. But when you are working with a good teacher or a good coach, they can say reward now. Mm. Something happened that was exponentially better than what you expected and you need to be on top of that. Mm. All right. I reckon that's the place to leave that's it. That's the place to leave it. All right. That's it for another episode of The Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Listen to it twice. Yeah, listen to it twice. That's a good way to do it. Although, does that matter on podcasts? Once you've downloaded it, I don't think it matters. Yeah, I don't know. When we get our studio built and we're on YouTube, we'll get people to watch it twice. Yeah. Although you can measure that on YouTube. YouTube knows everything. Yeah, really? It's very smart. The analytics on YouTube is outrageous. Imagine what's going to happen now. All this AI is being plugged into everything. Probably by the time people are listening to this, it'll be out and I will have posted in the group. Me and Matt did a podcast on the Coffees for Closest thing the other day and we played with that chat GPT and mm. asked it some dog training questions. It was pretty interesting. Yes, um, I've been hammering away at dog training questions with it myself. Yeah, it's a force-free trainer, it that's is. for sure. Yes, it is. But I also asked it what it could see. It's pretty interesting. It can only see data that was fed into it from 2021. Yep, September 2021, I believe. And it can't see live Thing. So like it can't like you, you can't ask it of a current YouTube video or something mm. like that. It can't see any of that. Um, it's pretty interesting. Anyway, get into our shit, like all our stuff. <laughs> tell a friend. Yeah. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump into Patreon. A few bucks so definitely a tell a friend about our Patreon. Yes. If you are not in a position to support it, but you know somebody or a group of people that might be able to, that's definitely going to help us with our studio. Absolutely. Yep. That's a great way to help us. If you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is to jump in the discussion group. Indeed. Or you can shoot us an email. We got info at- Hang on. Wait. Teespring. Oh. Buy yourself socks and underpants. <laughs> and a water bottle. And a water bottle. <laughs> one of those things are available. <laughs> but you get a shirt. Yes. And the shirts are cool. Yeah. Get one of them. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can shoot us an email. We got info at the canineparadigm.com. Goodbye.